What is up, hockey fans? This is the Golden Edge Podcast, the podcast for the Las Vegas Review Journal. Talks about hockey and dramatic uh, Golden Knights games. Uh, I am Ben Goetz, one of your Review Journal Golden Knights beat reporters. Joining me, as he always does on the other line, is my colleague, uh, David Shane. Dave, how's it hanging this Thursday afternoon? Good. It's a, it's a lovely day out there. Uh, the wind has passed. Not a fan of the wind uh, whatsoever. So, you know, this is like my favorite time of the year. I love like this, this autumn weather, you know, like before it gets cold, but it's not hot anymore. Like, this is the time you live in Vegas. This is what you live here for. Yeah, this is the money time uh, for sure. And it's also great hockey weather, uh, which is awesome because we're going to be talking a lot of hockey today, specifically the night's uh, last four games. Since we last got together to uh, talk about the team, we're also going to talk about uh, some moves that uh, they have made today and a move that they still might make uh, in the future. And we're going to address uh, one of the bigger headline items in the NHL as well. Uh, Before we get to all that on this edition of the Golden Edge podcast, let me quick remind everyone uh, that we are brought to you by the Las Vegas Review Journal. Uh, That's the job that pays the bills for both of us. Make sure to check out all our written work at reviewjournal.com. We have so much coverage going up on the site every single day. Uh, We are also presented by Blue Wire. Uh, And of course, if you guys can rate, review, subscribe, whatever you do podcasts, please do to this one. We would very much appreciate it. All right, let's talk Golden Knights hockey and let's talk about a crazy week. Since we last recorded, uh, the Knights lost to Edmonton and the New York Islanders at home. And it seemed like the sky was falling. Then they go on the road. They beat Colorado. They come back against Dallas last night, despite playing uh, on the second night of a back-to-back and having travel issues. So they didn't even show up to American Airlines Center until about three and a half hours before puck drop. Uh, So... Ultimately, they're two and two over their last four games, which is, you know, about that 500 points percentage pace we said, you know, they should try to play at. Now they've got, you know, Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty uh, on injured reserve. Uh, They just happen to pick a very interesting way to uh, get there. Uh, Dave, you know, watching this team over the last couple of games, I guess, uh, what have you seen and how have they looked I guess, compared to your expectations when we knew that they were going to be without some of their uh, best players for, you know, a key stretch here. Well, let's start off in being positive because they got four points out of two games on a road back to back. So like to sit here and start being negative or whatever, I'm not going to do that. So I think you have to, or I have to point out the resiliency and, you know, it was talked about, you know, after the game, Uh, Last night, as we record this in Dallas, you know, sort of the way that they won those two games on the road, they they found that formula that worked in the postseason against Colorado, kind of locking them down, limiting shots, you know, playing a much tighter, heavier game, Uh, got a lead early and sort of held on, not so much for dear life, but, you know, rode the goaltending of of Robin Leonard and you know, got two points that way. And they had to do it the other way in Dallas coming from behind, you know, terrible travel situation where they had to fly in day of the game because the flight was delayed the night before, uh, get into the arena about, you know, three and a half hours before opening face-off schedule time. Uh, as 
Laurent Brossois said, you know, it just took them a little bit to get their, their travel legs out of them. And they showed some fight. They showed some scrap. They were able to, you know, find a late goal. Uh, I thought it was a great use of the timeout by Pete DeBoer to keep, you know, basically the only handful of scores that he's got available to him, you know, on the ice and get him a breather. And, and they got tying goal and then great effort by Watt and over time to get, you know, Dadan off the puck, you know, for the winner. So, you know, just for them to find the goaltending, find a formula, find a way, uh, you, you have to, you have to feel good about that if you're the Knights, but you know, there's a lot of holes they are still giving up, you know, a ton of scoring chances and high danger chances and, they're still struggling to score and, and all those sorts of things. So, you know, we can talk about a little bit more of that, but you know, that that's, that's my biggest takeaway is, you know, a team, a good team finds a way and they found a way. Yeah. And that's kind of, I think been a theme for the Knights um, in basically all, all of their seasons so far. I mean, obviously that dates back to the inaugural season where they didn't have Mark Andre Fleury for a lengthy stretch and they kind of kept uh, winning. And obviously, as we talked about, you know, it's not necessarily fair to expect them to play at like a division winning pace with their two, you know, kind of top scores out of the lineup. But can you be, you know, 500? Can you survive this stretch? Essentially, I think that's the operative word. And obviously, those two wins show that they might just have enough fight and scrap to survive. Uh, but you know, let's get into some of the issues we're still seeing as well. I mean, you mentioned the scoring uh, so far this season. They have 16 goals in seven games. They have 12 in their last six games. Uh, the power play is 0 for 15 this season and 0 for 33 uh, dating back to last year's playoffs. I mean, we've seen a ton of different line combinations, both out of uh, necessity because guys are going in and out of the lineup all the time. Just last night, uh, Matisse Yanmark didn't play. He's day-to-day with an upper body injury. And then William Carrier uh, was playing to start the game and then blocked a shot and had to leave uh, in the second period. Uh, but the Knights are you know, generating a lot of offense or at least finishing a lot of the chances they're creating uh, consistently for sure uh, to start the season, which you know I don't necessarily think is a, a surprise, Dave, looking at their lineup. But um, we talked about last episode that Pete DeBoer kind of mentioned, you know, the race to three, how do we get to three? And, you know, in one of the only games they have gotten to three since those guys have been out of the lineup was last night and they need overtime to do it. They also got the three, of course, uh, against the Edmonton Oilers, but you know, Edmonton just happened to get five. Uh, so, you know, what are your thoughts on how consistently they're going to be able to uh, win Pete DeBoer's race to three after watching them the last week? Well, I think it's going to be tough. I still wonder about the secondary scoring and whether they can get that consistently. And then the power play, obviously, like if that's part of the formula, that's a, that's a major flaw right there because we've seen right, you know, excuse me right now that it struggles and the personnel that they have available is limited. It's not like you can just switch things around and expect this guy or that guy to fix it. Like the, most of those guys are hurt right now that like, you know, would be the antidote. So I feel like the offense in their current shape is going to continue to scratch and claw and fight and have to figure out, you know, different ways to score. But I, 
excuse me, I also think there was a little bit of signs of life, you know, the last couple of games that, that maybe, you know, they can do that. I, I, I really like Nicholas Waugh, you know, in the overtime. And I know it's a three on three, but I just think if they're able to generate goals like that, you know, off a of four check, find a centering pass, you know, it makes it so much easier for them rather than having to do everything off the rush and make it so fancy and basically skate it into the net, which they feel like they have to do sometimes it seems like. Yeah, totally. And the other big kind of thing we talked about in addition to the race to three is, you know, can this team win a lot of, you know, three, two, maybe even two, one games and honestly kind of take on uh, the Dallas identity. I mean, it was interesting watching them play the stars last night when it seems like, you know, following kind of the stars brand of hockey over the last, you know, three or four years seems to be their template right now. And obviously they did win one of those three, two games against Dallas last night. I think we certainly saw uh, against Colorado that this team has the ability to play and win some of those types of hockey games. They were really kind of stout defensively that game more than we've seen them in the past. But then of course, you know, as we've talked about tough circumstances last night in Dallas, but even though that was a three, two hockey game, uh, the Knights defensive effort uh, did not uh, kind of match the scoreline. Instead, their their goaltender more matched the scoreline in Laurent Brassois. But there's still, you know, some coverage issues that this team, uh, I think, needs to clean up. Today. Yeah, for sure. I think it was 49 scoring chances against Dallas uh, that natural stat trick had, uh, which would be a season high. And you go back and you look at the the high danger chances, it's consistently been like 17, 18, 17. So yeah, even though the score has been down and it's the, maybe more of the feels like the type of game that they're wanting to play right now, especially that Islanders game. That was, that was one of the more wide open two nothing games. I think you'll ever get. It was very entertaining. Yeah. Because game. it felt like every time the Islanders went the other way, they generated a good scoring chance, you know? So it kept everybody on their toes. Like, I don't think the Knights, I don't think that's a recipe for success. That eventually has to tighten up. But the positive side of that is the goaltend. You know, early on, maybe there was there was some moments where Robin Leonard had, you know, I don't want to say struggles, but, you know, wasn't playing great. Wasn't playing, you know, certainly at the level that we've seen him. Now, all of a sudden, it feels like he is. Now, all of a sudden, it feels like, okay, you know, he's starting to really you know, get into form, get his timing down. And then we saw Brossois, you know, last night, you know, gave them a chance to steal the two points and that's exactly what happened. So I think any of the, the concerns, if there were about goaltending or like that's, that, that should be completely alleviated at this point because for the most part, I think the goaltenders have been the two best players early on. Oh, I totally agree with that. And I'm curious to see what kind of the goaltending split looks like moving forward and whether, you know, Brassois, who it took until game seven for him to get a start, whether he might've kind of uh, earned some extra playing time with that performance. Cause I think, you know, we talked about the last episode of when Knights coaches and this includes Gerard Galani and Pete DeBoer have gotten into tough spots. They've tended to uh, play their number one guy a lot. And uh, now all of a sudden I think uh, effort like Brassois gave the Knights last night might give Pete DeBoer some more confidence turning to him in, you know, different spots and maybe making it more of a, a two to one, three to one kind of split as opposed to what it is right now, which is uh, six to one. Um, 
you know, we said that there's still some issues to clean up. The goaltending has been really good. Um, but like we said, they're at, uh, you know, 500 over their last four games. They're at three and four overall. They're basically, you know, one point out of the very, very early playoff picture. So they're definitely not in, you know, a tricky spot anymore. They have Anaheim coming up at home before a four game trip to Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, and Detroit. I mean, so, you know, based on if they can get back to true kind of 500 tomorrow, Dave, against the Ducks, is that basically, you know, the sign of life that this team would need? I mean, or do you think just getting those two wins on the road was enough of kind of a positive boost of momentum for this team that maybe things are going to start falling into place, come a little bit easier for this group? Well, considering I wrote a story for tomorrow about how, you know, that could be a turning point. I'm going to completely contradict that. And only in the sense of like, I don't really believe in turning points. Me personally, you know, I believe what the players believe. And if, if they thought, and it sounded, you know, Jonathan Marks so talked about it. I think Chandler Stevenson, especially after that Colorado game specifically, that game. And I think the way that they won, the way that they played seemed to change the mindset, seemed to change the confidence level. That did something. And I think to me, it's, you know, the only way that you can really go back and look at it was that a turning point was, was at the moment they figured it out is if they continue to win and if they, if they use it going forward, you know, to, like you said, stay afloat, maybe even, you know, win a couple games in a row. Like here's the other thing too. They have a four game road trip coming up that maybe it's a start looked a heck of a lot more daunting than it does right now. You know, like Toronto's what not playing well. Ottawa's Ottawa. Montreal is not playing well. And Detroit is better. You know, maybe they catch them and, you know, maybe they'd be catching the Knights in a schedule spot there. Maybe that's a tough game, you know, but all of a sudden, like the, you don't feel like that road trip, which, which, you know, a few days ago, you're going, Oh my gosh, six or seven. And they have to go to, you know, Canada and all that. And what, what are they going to do? Like you just, it, the perspective on everything has changed, you know, I feel like for them. And, and so, yeah. Is it like a turning point? Was it a moment? Did they figure it all? We'll see. And, and if they continue to play well, if it, if they push forward, if, if this team all of a sudden, you know, by January, you know, December is where everybody thinks it is, then yeah, then, then maybe, maybe that, back to back and maybe whatever happened with the travel struggles and all that similar to maybe them getting kicked out of their hotel, you know, last year in San Jose seemed to kind of galvanize them a little bit. So if that's what it took to snap them out of it and get them to figure out the effort level that it takes for them to win right now, then, you know, maybe that was the moment. Yeah. We'll have to see. It'll be interesting to see how they fare on that road trip. Uh, let's shift gears now to a little bit of uh, off-ice news to discuss. Uh, there's one very tangible thing we have to talk about and one kind of less tangible thing that I still think is worth getting into. Um, first, defenseman Zach Whitecloud uh, signed a six-year extension today, just a couple hours before we started recording, with an average annual value of $2.75 million. Uh, that deal carries him through the uh, 2027 2028 season. Uh, he was scheduled to be an restricted free agent this offseason before this deal came through. Uh, White Cloud, of course, is 
probably maybe the Knights' best defensive defenseman, just in terms of, you know, his pure ability to kind of limit chances for the Knights. And he's been an absolute developmental success story for them after signing as a college free agent out of Bemidji State. Um, when you saw kind of the, these terms come down, Dave, did this look about, you know, right to you or about fair to you for both sides? Yeah. And and actually, I'll be really honest, like, since we're doing this as a podcast, I'm kind of surprised Zach Whitecloud would sign for six years at that. Uh, it takes until like age 30 plus, which I'm sure he loves the security and whatever. But, you know, I, I don't know how negotiations work. I mean, if, if I'm him, maybe I'm signing like for three or four years and then, you know seeing if I can get more at that point. But I think everybody's probably going to walk away feeling, you know, pretty darn happy. He's, he's got a six year contract in the NHL, you know, uh, you know, a kid who, like you said, went to Bemidji state and like, wasn't even thinking about pro hockey, you know, and now all of a sudden he's, you know, he's basically locked up his future in the NHL because of how he's played the last couple of years. And, you know, for the Knights, it's a good number. Uh, it's not anything that's going to weigh down, you know, a salary cap thing. And it, and it also, you know, with that gives them flexibility. And, and I also think it's fair, you know, it, it's a, it's a significant raise for, for Zach Whitecloud. And, and, you know, you look at comparables, you look at what he's going to do, you know, defensively and then his numbers offensively, unless there's a big jump, you know, it puts him right in a, in a group with, with pretty good company. So I'm sure George McPhee and Kelly McCrimmon and, you know, Andrew Lugerner, who, you know, does those negotiations for that front office, you know, feel pretty good about it. And I'm sure Zach Whitecloud and his agent and his family are, are celebrating as well. No, totally. And that'll lead us into kind of our, our second off-ice piece of news as well. Because maybe semi-sort of I'm stretching this related because it's interesting that the Knights got long-term cost certainty for one of their prospective restricted free agent this offseason because there's still a potential that they could add a big cost in the middle of this year. Uh, Yes, there are still Jack Eichel whispers uh, kind of surrounding the franchise. It especially feels like they're still popping up in the last week or so. Uh, Plugged in people like Frank Sarali, Daily Faceoff, Elliot Friedman at Sportsnet. And keep mentioning the Knights as a real destination for Eichel. Um, the quickie recap for those that haven't been paying attention. Eichel, he's a bona fide top line center. He was eighth in the Hart Trophy voting uh, his last full season, which was 2019-2020. He needs to have surgery on a herniated disc in his neck. And uh, his current team, the Buffalo Sabres, and he disagree on what kind of procedure he should get. They've basically just been staring back and forth at each other for months. And meanwhile, he's still not playing because he's hurt. Uh, He's been stripped of the captaincy there. He counts $10 million against the cap this season and for four more afterwards. So uh, the Knights fitting him in would not be cheap. uh, One, from just a trade standpoint in terms of what assets they would have to give up just to get him in the building. And then B, from a cap standpoint, because bringing him in undoubtedly means other guys are going to have to go out either during the trade or maybe later in the off season in order to make the money work. Um, but you know, all that said, Dave, this still does appear to be a, you know, possibility at the very least for the Knights. who knows how real of a possibility it is, but it is certainly something out there in the ether right now. I and mean, what do you make of all this? Where do you think things are at right now? So I'll give you some breaking news. You're not necessarily aware of this. Um, 
Let's just say somebody that's very well plugged in gave me a heads up this morning um, that they were hearing um, that there might be some movement and that I, I need to get ready. So uh, I'll just say that it, that that like that's where it's at. I think it's that real at this point that that something might happen one way or the other. Um, I don't know. I, it's, I, as we as we talk about this, like I plan to make some phone calls and stuff this afternoon, and you know, see what I can see what I can dig up and and poke around. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, put it this way: Frank Frank Saravalli and Elliot Freeman don't just throw things against the wall, and you know, when there when there's smoke, there's fire, and all that sort of stuff. Like, there's there's too many rumblings and too many people hearing the same things you know, for all of us to turn a blind eye and think that there isn't some kind of chatter going on one way or the other. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll find out. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, I guess maybe the irony, what Chandler Stevenson, the guy who, you know, can't be a number one center is leading the team in scoring right now. So. Right. That is a very funny bit of irony. Cause even we've talked that Chandler Stevenson kind of has been, a perfect uh, third wheel for Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty. But now he's standing up uh, quite well on his own two feet for the Knights right now on his own. Um, but the other thing that we at least get into at least a little bit with the Eichel discussion is, you know, we've, I mean, touched on the cap stuff briefly there. I mean, real NHL players would likely need to come out of the lineup for the Knights to make this work. You know, one would assume now, obviously they can get, uh, creative in terms of, you know, having other teams maybe retain some salary in a trade. There's all sorts of machinations and the Knights have proven that they can kind of finagle their way around a deal, but there probably would be at least some immediate NHL cost to it with patch already, you know, potentially still out with stone potentially still out. Now, all those guys can be put on long-term injured reserve and that can give them more salary cap flexibility and all this stuff. But at some point, one would presume all those guys might be able to come back on the books and that would create a problem for the Knights. Uh, for those, and I've seen some suggestion of this on Twitter, that Eichel is going to you know, have a Nikita Kucherov situation. Like the Tampa Bay Lightning had last year where Kucherov missed the entire regular season, uh, was back to the playoffs, and that allowed the Lightning to do some cap chicanery where they were able to use long-term injured reserve the entire season. That's probably not going to happen with Eichel. Um, Kucherov was a guy that obviously had been in Tampa Bay for a very long time. He'd won MVP there. Uh, if you're the Knights, you're not going to bring in Eichel and then keep him on long-term injured reserve the entire rest of the season uh, just so we can you know, not get used to a new system and a new team and new teammates and all that stuff. He's going to need to play, and based on what's out there in terms of the type of surgery he wants to get, he would be able to in a, you know, three to four months, which would put him kind of towards the back end of the regular season. But yeah, what do you think of the timing potentially of this coming down soonish day where the Knights would be acquiring a guy in Eichel who would not be available right away and potentially not be available for a while, uh, taking potentially even more NHL pieces off the table for them right now in a time when they're already shorthanded. Does that, do you think this makes them more likely to do it now? Less likely? Uh, where, where does that leave them in terms of a wrinkle in this whole thing? Yeah. Scenario? I mean, I feel like less likely just looking at it on the surface, like you don't got all these guys that are injured 
And then you're going to what trade out salary, um, trade guys off the NHL roster to make some of this money work because Buffalo apparently has said that it's not going to retain any salary in any kind of deal. So now you're like taking more guys off a roster and getting somebody back who can't play for three or four months. I, I don't know. I, I'm going to throw one, one, other, excuse me, one other thing out there. Um, because I think there's sort of a, a big question mark um, in all of this is the health of Mark Stone um, and how long he's going to be out, whether he goes on long-term IR, um, whether that allows them to finagle some any more, you know, room and whatever, uh, like the whole day-to-day week-to-week thing. Like I, I feel like maybe originally I misread that and I feel like, and it's come out, you know, some, you know, the, the names, you know, Frank Cervalli, Elliot Friedman as well, same folks we mentioned earlier, you know, have kind of talked about maybe there's a little more ambiguity with that. And I've heard that as well, um, that there, there might not be as much certainty in terms of a timeline on his return. And if that's the case, then, you know, I don't know, maybe it makes them more likely. I, I, it's so hard to get into their heads and what they're thinking, you know, is on this, but yeah, on the surface, it feels like a weird time with all of the injuries swirling around to make a deal for somebody who can't help you right now. Right. And of course we don't know what the construction of the deal will look like. Obviously it's really hard to speculate around all this stuff. And as you mentioned, there's even a lot with the Knights current situation that we don't know in terms of, you know, longer term, the status of Mark Stone. Um, Max Pacioretty has more of a firm timeline. It was six weeks from his injury. Uh, Alex Tuck, it was six months from his offseason shoulder surgery in July. So he's looking like late January, uh, maybe early February, or of course, he could just come back after the Olympic break which starts in early February and then goes until late February. There's a lot of uh, moving pieces and a lot of balls in the air for the Knights to juggle. But uh, one thing that we definitely do know after watching this team for uh, going on five seasons now, they are never afraid to make the big move and they are never afraid to create a splash. And that's why a potential Jack Eichel trade would be perfectly in line. Uh, we'll see if Dave's right and there's something coming down soon because if that happens, that'll be a lot, a lot to talk about. Um, before we uh, get out of here, uh, I do think, and this is a difficult transition because we're going from kind of more fun hockey speculation to a more serious topic, but I think we need to touch on at least the most important story in, in hockey at the moment. Um, so I'm going to quick give it a trigger warning because we're going to talk about accounts of sexual violence. So um, if anyone was just here for the kind of fun night's discussion, feel free to um, turn off now if that's something that uh, triggers you. Uh, for those that missed it, the independent investigation into allegations of a sexual assault that happened on a two a Chicago Blackhawk Black Ace during the team's run to the 2010 Stanley Cup came out Tuesday. Uh, one of the key findings was that many high-level members of the Blackhawks, including uh, then-team president John McDonough, general manager Stan Bowman, coach Joel Quinville, and more, um, knew that the team's video coach at the time, Brett Aldrich, had committed an alleged sexual assault 
and didn't report anything to HR for three weeks just because they wanted the team to focus on uh, winning the cup. Uh, and in fact, Aldrich actually celebrated the Stanley Cup victory within the vicinity uh, of his alleged victim. Uh, it's just uh, horrible, uh, heartbreaking stuff. Uh, the entire 107-page uh, report from the law firm Generate Block uh, is public. If you uh, do care to read it, once again, there's obviously some very hard stuff to uh, read in there. Uh, the consequences that came out pretty immediately, Bowman basically essentially resigned as GM of the Blackhawks and the U.S. men's Olympic hockey team. Uh, Quinville is actually meeting with Commissioner Gary Bettman about the findings uh, today. He did coach the Florida Panthers, which is where he's currently at last night, and did not speak to the media afterwards. Uh, and then Winnipeg GM Kevin Chevaldeoff, who was Chicago's assistant GM at the time, and in you know this meeting that uh, took place, according to the report, where kind of the Blackhawks brain trust at the time said, let's not say anything about this so we can focus on winning the cup. He's uh, expected to meet with Batman on Monday. Um, the Black Ace, who had largely been kind of referred to as John Doe to protect his identity, uh, did come public yesterday. He is Kyle Beach. He is a former first-round pick of the Blackhawks, um, and he was 20 years old when all of this happened to him. Uh, if you guys can, I would highly recommend watching his interview with TSN's Rick Westhead, who has done an absolutely, absolutely incredible job reporting on this story for months. Uh, it is just gut-wrenching, maddening, frustrating, emotional to uh, hear Beach, who was failed by so many people on so many different levels, um, talk about the experiences and his emotions and everything uh, that has gone into the last 11 or so uh, years for him. Um, overall, this was just really, really sad. It was a really sad and dark day for the NHL. It's a really sad chapter in hockey's history. And it was one that was just avoidable and preventable, which makes it, uh, all the more aggravating, um, which is kind of, yeah, the piece I have to say on that in this whole story. Um, Dave, do you have anything to I guess, add or, or comment on when it comes to everything that's come out? Well, I think most important is acknowledging Kyle Beach's bravery and coming forward in this. Um, I listened to that interview. I can't imagine what emotions were stirred in him and what it took and the strength that it took to get <clears throat> through that interview and share his, his feelings with it. Um, I guess the bigger thing I, I would maybe like to add since we're talking about this is I'll get on my soapbox a little bit and, and just say in general, I think there's a weird sort of phenomenon in society where we're, we're so eager to pick up our phone and, and video something and, you know, put it on the internet make it world star, whatever it might be. And as soon as we're confronted with something serious and we have to make a choice, so many of us act in fear and, and just let other people handle it up the chain of command. Every, there's just something about passing the buck. And I, I just hope there's a lesson to be learned in, the NHL, um, you know, business and society in general, you know, 
you see something, if you hear something, you know something, you know, speak out, act on it, and, you know, keep people safe. Because I think the most heartbreaking thing was to just hear the guilt that, that he felt and, and just, you know, to know, to know people that have, you know, been through maybe a similar situation or, or you know, a different kind of sexual assault, whatever it might be, like, you know, to know that he feels guilt, to know that he feels like he could have done something different or better to help other people is just heartbreaking. And, you know, I just feel like it's just on all of us, you know, to do what it takes to prevent anything like this from ever happening again in the NHL or, or anywhere else. No, for that matter. No, 100%. I agree with all your thoughts and uh, 100% agree. Kyle Beach should just be commended and applauded for uh, the bravery and strength that he showed yesterday, especially being able to be public about it. And once again, if um, you uh, are able to watch his interview, if you feel like you can uh, get through that interview, I highly recommend it. Um, it's just very impactful to hear it uh, straight from him. Um, so yeah, that is obviously uh, a tricky kind of detour to leave the show on, but I felt, you know, as a, you know, hockey podcast that covers the NHL, I felt it was something we should at least address and bring up since it's definitely been the biggest story in the NHL over the past couple days. And we'll see what more fallout kind of comes out of it because, um, as I said, there's still some some key people, Quenville and uh, Shovel Dayoff, where you know their parts in this story definitely are not over yet. Um, but that's going to do it for this edition of the Golden Edge Podcast. Uh, as a reminder, we are brought to you by the Las Vegas Review Journal. Make sure to check out all our written work at ReviewJournal.com, and we are presented by Blue Wire. Uh, also, please rate, review, subscribe, whatever you do to podcasts. Please do to this one. We very much appreciate it. Uh, I'm Ben Goats. He's Dave Shane. We are the Golden Edge Podcast. Talk to you guys again real soon.